This podcast contains adult content. Some of the themes or topics may include information on murder, kidnapping, torture, dismemberment, maybe some demonic content with information on positions and paranormal activity. This podcast will also include explicit, horrible, and foul, socially unacceptable, totally uninhibited, adult themes language. So if you're easily offended, if you're easily triggered, then I highly suggest you turn this off now. And if not, just keep in mind, parental discretion is advised. Welcome, welcome. I know it's been a while, but I am back. I am the host of this fabulous podcast, Mysterious Circumstances. My name is Justin, and before we get going, I do have to play a promo for a podcast that I am now a fan of. Me and Leroy Luna started emailing back and forth, um, thanks to Tyler for Minds of Madness, and I love this dude. Me and him are on the same page about all kinds of shit in the true crime genre. Uh, he's an awesome dude and he hosts a podcast called excuse me that's illegal and if you like this podcast the one that you're listening to right now you should go check his out because i'm pretty sure you will like it as well so check out this promo and i'll be right back oh hey there you like true crime stories right yeah yeah i know who doesn't but i gotta admit after a while all those stories of murder and heartache well they tend to go straight to my hips so that's why I, Leroy Luna, have created a podcast called Excuse Me, That's Illegal, where we'll take a hardcore look at some softcore crimes. No TED Talks on Bundy here. The letters BTK won't be coming from these lips. Unless he had a brother that used to steal library books. Suppose I'd be willing to go balls deep into that one if that were the case. Anyways, you'll hear stories such as The Mad Pooper, a female jogger who wreaked havoc in a Colorado Springs neighborhood using one family's front yard as her own personal dumping grounds. If this kind of content sounds like it's up your alley, excuse me, that's illegal. It's available right now on all your favorite podcatchers. So come join me. I'll be right here waiting for you. Like I said, I'm pretty sure you guys would like this podcast, so go check it out. Like Leroy said, it's on every podcast player imaginable. I'm pretty sure you like it. That being stated, I do have some new Patreon subscribers to thank. I have Missy McAdams, Eat the Poo Poo, <laughs> and uh, Kathy Savage Davies, Wilhelm Breidenbach, and Michelle Armstrong. Also, Wilhelm, if I screwed up your name, I do apologize, man. Uh, I figured it was either Breidenbach or Breidenbach. One or the other, I do apologize if I didn't pronounce it correctly. And I hope you guys are enjoying the 100-plus episodes that are not on the regular feed that I do have on Patreon, along with episodes that are ad-free that are on the regular feed, so there is that. I will be making an announcement on Patreon. Uh, there will be some changes, but we are going to make it more affordable for everybody. We know times are tough right now. You know, it saves me and uh, my researcher Lindsay time. So we formulated up this little plan on what we can do, and that's what we're going to do, and we're going to make it more affordable for everybody. So if you're not on Patreon and you want to check it out, go to patreon.com slash mysterious circumstances. See if there's anything on there you might like. You can also make a one-time donation. 
at Venmo at MC Podcast. I'm also on PayPal as well, so check it out. I do have a special shout out to give as well. Good friend of mine, Jen from Oregon, texted me a while back and said, Hey, my daughter and one of her friends really like your podcast. They're fans. So I said, Fuck it, man. Let's give them a shout out. So, Mika, Lucius, I appreciate you two listening. I hope you guys enjoy the content. Obviously, this is some pretty mature subject matter. There are some fun episodes that I do have as well. But I know you two can handle it. And again, Mika, Lucius, thank you so much for listening. It is greatly appreciated, and I hope you guys enjoy. I did see a couple new reviews. As you guys know, I haven't read reviews for a long time after podcasts. I'm just kind of over all that, even though I do greatly, greatly appreciate And I'm very humbled by some of the reviews that come in. And I do see a lot of them. I don't see all of them. But I did get two bad reviews recently for profanity. So, apparently, me playing a disclaimer at the beginning of every fucking episode and a podcast description that literally says explicit language is not enough. So now I have to go a third route and vocally tell you that there is profanity in this podcast, okay? I'm not going to do what I used to do, which is literally call you out and have all my listeners just call you an idiot. I'm not going to do that anymore, all right? So, for those of you who are new to the podcast, there is profanity, all right? That's what explicit language means. That's what my disclaimer at the beginning of every episode is about. So anyway... My name is Justin, welcome to Mysterious Circumstances, and you are listening to Mad Sam, Part 1. He actually liked to use an ice pick on people. All the sort of tortures that uh, one could think of. I knew of no criminal as vicious, as unforgiving, as sadistic as Sam Stefano. I can't think of any other mobsters that were quite as demented. As he was. There was something very evil about Sam Stefano. Had the devil inside of him. And I think that would explain it all. Then I became what they call a raving maniac. Do I make myself clear? Samuel Mad Sam Stefano was born on September 13th, 1909. A little bit about his early years. He was born in Streeter, Illinois, to an Italian-American family of Samuel Stefano Sr. and Rosalie Stefano, whose maiden name was Brasco. Both of his parents were born in Italy and immigrated to the United States in 1903. Stefano Sr. was a laborer, and later on in life he was a grocer and a real estate salesman who died of natural causes in 1942 at the age of 77. Rosalie was a housewife, and throughout her life she was supported mainly by her children after her husband died, and she ended up dying in October of 1960. All in all, the Stefanos had a shitload of kids, alright? So when Sam Jr. was about two months old, his father and his family moved to Heron, Illinois, where his father worked in the local coal mine. At the time, this was a good paying job. As we know now, not the greatest job that you can have. It's very dangerous. People die in a black lung all the time. But at this point in time, it was a very, very good paying job. Rosalie stayed home and took care of all the children. 
1922, there was a labor dispute that is known as the Heron Massacre, and 22 coal miners were killed. Sam Sr. was one of the people that survived, and he ended up leaving the area. He's getting out of town. So the Stefano family moved north to Chicago's Little Italy, which was near the west side. They moved to a second-story apartment, which overlooked a garbage dump. This was the Italian ghetto. People worked any job that they could do to make money and get by. They shined shoes, sold candy in theaters, sold newspapers, did anything that they could. And Sam saw all these mobsters around him in this little ghetto. They had nice suits. They're carrying around wads of money. And that's what he wanted. So in 1922, when Prohibition hit, 13-year-old Sam... He decides to get in on it because it's easy money. But unfortunately, it's also very violent. But Mad Sam was somehow perfectly okay with this. He joins up with the 42 gang, and each member wore a white fedora. That's how you knew who they were. And I'm telling you, like, there were some prominent historical figures in the mafia that were in the 42 gang. One of which being Sam Giancana, known as Momo. We all know who that guy is. Well, most of us do. But this was a chance for him to make good money. So he ended up bringing in his two brothers to the gang as well, who would be Mario and Michael. They would commit crimes like burglary, theft, robbery... And they would do little light jobs for the mob as well. And Sam and Mario did good in crime because they were capable of being violent. Michael, not so much. He was not a vicious guy. He was a very sensitive guy. He just wasn't as tough. He was not built for that lifestyle. So after a few years of doing this, on September 12th, 1926, we have one of the earliest reports of Sam getting arrested in Chicago and turned over to the Niles Police Department as a fugitive for breaking out of jail. A year later, on July 1st, 1927, several hundred West Side gang members showed up threatening violence against a police sergeant for arresting Stefano and shooting his associate, Harry Cosgrove. Now, if that doesn't tell you the tight-knit relationship with these gang members that's how it was like several hundred of these dudes showed up and they were ready to kill a police sergeant just for arresting sam and shooting his buddy so on august 19th 1927 sam wants to show his appreciation you know he's a big dude in the gang and he wants to find a woman for entertainment for the gang that night so him and another guy just kind of lingered and stalked outside the movie theater. When the movie got out, they targeted a teenage girl walking home alone. The girl was forced into an automobile and driven to a garage where she was raped by seven men. And I'm telling you, this is when Sam was young, and it does not get any better from here. So just know, whatever trigger warnings you might need in a true crime podcast, I hope you would have common sense enough to know shit's gonna go down. The dude's nickname is Mad Sam. Okay, this is one of the first things. So this chick is raped by seven men in the gang, and the cops were tipped off by an anonymous witness. So not long after 
the girl got there, the cops busted in and people started running everywhere. But Sam was caught and arrested. And a few months later in November of 1927, DiStefano and fellow gang member Ralph Orlando were in court on charges of assaulting that 17-year-old girl. Orlando and Sam were both found guilty of rape. Orlando and Sam were both found guilty of rape. Orlando was sentenced to 10 years and Sam was sentenced to 3 years because he didn't actually perform the rape yet. He set it all up. But technically, because he hadn't actually performed the rape, they gave him three years. So he did his time in Illinois Stateville Prison. In January of 1931, he is released from prison. But he learned some shit while he was in there. In 1932, he was wounded by a policeman during a grocery store robbery. And how we know that is because he ended up showing up at a hospital on Chicago's west side with bullet wounds, but he refused to explain where they were from. Well, that's where they were from. Now on July 10th, just a year later, he masterminded a bank robbery in New Lisbon, Wisconsin. He had a four-man crew. They did the bank robbery successfully, but as they were making their getaway headed back for Chicago... Their car broke down. So, later that year, he is convicted of bank robbery and he is sentenced to 40 years in prison. Nine years later, in December of 1942, his sentence was commuted by Governor Julius Heil. And about two years after that, in December of 1944, he was released after serving just 11 years. Now we can stop right here and just say this dude's crime sprees could have completely been avoided if his uh, sentence was not commuted. But unfortunately, sometimes that's how it goes. I don't like it. I just report the facts. And I'm telling you right now, this is just 1944 up until then. Shit gets way crazier. So after he gets out, he starts working a local painting job, and he meets a seamstress named Anita Pisciata. And on February 15th of 1945, they got married at Holy Family Catholic Church. In October of 1945, his twin son and daughter were born, John and Sandra. In 1947, just a couple years later, their daughter Janice was born. Now in June of 1947, Sam returned to prison for processing counterfeit sugar ration stamps. He had sold 6,000 stamps to a local distributor. He was sentenced to one year in Leavenworth. Now according to the Cook County Police, Sam was a very, very bad guy, but he was not a very smart guy. He was crazy as hell though. While he was in Leavenworth Federal Penitentiary, Sam meets one of the outfit leaders, a guy named Paul Rica. He was serving time for extortion in there. And he decides to take Sam under his wing and he starts teaching him about juice loans or loan sharking. A juice loan is one of those loans that a person gives out and whoever gets that loan has to pay a super high percentage every week. We'll get more into that a little bit later, but 
1948, Sam gets out of prison and has a civil service job in Chicago as a garbage dump foreman. At this point, he's 39 years old and had spent almost half of his life in prison. Now, like I said, while he was in Leavenworth, Paul Rika takes him under his wing. So now that Sam is out of prison, Rika puts this dude to work and he gives him money to put out on the street for loans. And he was very good at what he did. Sam starts one of the most prominent loan shark operations in Chicago. Most of his clients are criminals who needed money for lawyers and bail and stuff like that. Now, part of the money that he's also putting out there is stolen money from the days that he was a bank robber. But he uses this money in his profits, and he starts investing in Chicago real estate as well. He ended up buying a 24-suite apartment building, and he used the rent money as legitimate income to bribe local aldermen and other politicians. <laughs> in January of 1950... Here's one crazy story. This is just a simple little one-off story. Sam buys a car. Police later spotted him driving around in it with a sign reading, This is a lemon. Because they used to have the lemon law. I think we still do. I'm not sure. But he wanted to make sure that everybody would notice it. He also put grapefruits all over the car and just smeared grapefruits all over it. Because he felt that he bought a lemon of a car and wanted the world to know about it. And now that I think about it, this is probably before the lemon laws. So, yeah, this dude did not give a shit, right? So, a couple years later, city officials discovered that Sam had omitted his criminal record from his civil service application when he got his job coming out of prison. But they chose not to prosecute him. And part of that is because his influence extended to the city officials, prominent judges, and law enforcement officers. This dude had all kinds of people in his pocket, and he was crazy as fuck. He straight up would brag there wasn't any case that he couldn't fix, and he began to offer these services accordingly. That was a lot of his loan sharking, was other criminals having to pay for their court cases. So what he would do was he would bribe the cops first. Then he would bribe the judges. His fees would range from $800 for an acquittal on a robbery case to $1,500 for an acquittal on an assault case. He allegedly fixed a first-degree murder case for $20,000 and got away with it and got the guy off. Mad Sam's arrangements became so routine that corrupt police officers would escort people to his house so that Sam could collect on his juice loans. The cops were basically acting as ropers, is what they called them. They would rope these people who owed Sam money and just straight take them to his house so that Sam could collect. Now, by the mid-1950s, Sam is at the top of the Chicago juice loan racket, and the reason he was at the top was because he had the most money out on the street. This dude was making thousands upon thousands of dollars a week, which at the time, in the mid-50s, that was a lot of money. 
this dude's loans would have a 20% to 25% a week juice. So to put this in perspective, here's how it went down. Let's say you borrow $100 from me. Every week that you don't pay that $100 back, you still owe me either 20 or 25% of that. So let's say you get busted and need bail money. Your bail money is $100. I give you that $100. You don't have a job. You're in trouble. You don't have a lawyer. But you're still going to pay me $25 a week on top of the original $100. And that's why they call it a juice loan because you would just squeeze money out of people. And because they were doing it to other criminals, it was just one of those things. They weren't doing it to regular people, you know. But he also started gaining a reputation around this time. And he was very successful on collecting money because when he made a threat, he followed through. Now, for those of you who are not into the mafia like I am, Frank Collada tells a story. And Frank Collada was a hitman for the Chicago outfit. He was featured in that movie Casino. He was one of the guys with uh, Tony Spilatro and stuff like that. Very, very intense dude. Now, he tells a story because he was there with Mad Sam. And he says that, yeah, one day we go to Sam's lawyer's office and the lawyer thinks that it's just a regular meeting. And Sam walks in and starts calling this guy a son of a bitch. And he starts saying, I told you to take care of that case. You never showed up in court. And Frank Collada is sitting there like, what the fuck, man? Like, I thought he was just meeting up with this lawyer. Mad Sam takes his dick out and he starts pissing all over the lawyer. And at the end of this meeting, before he leaves, the lawyer thanked Sam for not killing him. He didn't care that he got pissed on. He literally thanked him for not killing him. Frank Collada, when he tells a story, he used to do a lot of stuff with with Sam. And he goes, this guy was the scariest person I have ever been around. And that's coming from a man who was a contract killer. He did not like hanging around Sam very often. Now, by this time as well, Sam's loan shark victims included politicians, lawyers, small-time criminals, and towards the end of the decade, like I said, he was charging anywhere between 20% to 25% interest a week. And this is right around the time they start calling him Mad Sam, because he had a reputation for being violent and absolutely out of his mind crazy. There is not a thing this man would not do. Now, while he's building this reputation in the Chicago outfit, he decides to bring his brothers in from the 42 gang, Mario and Michael. Now, like I said before, Mario was just like him. He was not scared to get violent. He was Sam's number one guy. Michael, on the other hand, was not like that. He was soft. Sam kept him around because he was family and he wanted him to make a good living and make money and be prosperous and stuff like that. Unfortunately, in 1955, Michael crossed a line. He was making very easy money. And unfortunately, a lot of people at this time started getting into heroin. And Michael was one of those people. And Sam knew it and he hated it. Drugs were against the rules of the outfit. Because when you got involved in drugs, that brought on heat from the FBI. That also meant that you were more than likely going to roll over on other people if you were facing major jail time. 
so the outfit was strictly against dealing with drugs. So the bosses of the outfit found out about Michael, and they told Sam that he had to die. And with the outfit, you do what you're told, or you're the one that ends up dead. So on September 17th, 1955, the cops get an anonymous call. The caller says there's a fresh body in the trunk of a car. When they get there, the body had been dead around 12 to 15 hours. It was found a few blocks from Michael's home, and the lack of blood at the scene suggested that he was shot elsewhere. He was also under FBI investigation at the time for the Greenlease ransom money, which you can go look up on your own time. It's a whole nother thing. Now, usually when it's a hit, there's a shot to the head. Nobody cares. The body is left there until somebody finds it. This one was different. The victim was shot five times in the body, not the head. So Sam had actually cleaned up the body as well, had bathed it and put him in a suit and made sure the body was found in a good amount of time so that they could have a family burial. And he gave respect to the body. And later on, of course, they found out that Sam had killed his own little brother because of drugs and because he was so loyal to the outfit. And that also proved to the outfit that Sam would do absolutely anything they brought sam in for questioning on this murder and when they did he allegedly didn't say shit he just laughed uncontrollably the entire time he was eventually released because the police decided to look the other way because of sam's political influence and the fact that he had all these big name people bribed which is absolutely nuts. Now, this is a good stopping point right now before we get into some more crazy shit. I'm going to take a quick break, play a few ads. You can either fast forward a few minutes or use this time to take a break yourself. Either way, I will see you right back here pretty soon. So by the end of the 1950s, business is booming Sam is making a shitload of money, but he's also getting way more sadistic with collecting his money. By the early 1960s, Sam DiStefano was a leading loan shark for the outfit. He was bringing in about $1 million a year because he had a reputation and people paid. They did not fuck around with this guy. Sam would also be one of the few guys that would accept very high-risk debtors. He would loan money to drug addicts or businessmen who had already defaulted on previous debts. And he's one of the few guys that would give out those loans. And there was a reason. It's because Sam DiStefano enjoyed when people did not pay on time. Because that meant he could bring them to the soundproof torture room that he'd built in the basement of his home on North Sayre Avenue in Chicago. This room was directly underneath the living quarters of his wife and three children. Other gangsters later on would come out and say that he would actually foam at the mouth and be smiling the entire time while he was torturing his victims. From time to time, 
He would also kill debtors who owed him small sums just to scare other debtors into paying for the bigger debts. So let's say a guy owed Sam 20 bucks and another guy owed Sam a thousand bucks. The guy with a thousand bucks is further behind on the debt. Sam would kill the guy who owed him $20 just to scare the other guy into paying him his money. Which, as much as I hate to say it, business practice-wise... I wish you guys could see me. I'm kind of shrugging. Like, it makes sense, okay? I'm not saying it's right. Obviously, it's, like, not right. It's crazy as shit. But it makes sense business-wise. So, when he killed the dude who owed him 20 bucks, which wasn't shit in Sam's eyes, those other dudes who owed him $1,000 or way more would be like, oh, shit, here, here's your money. That's how it worked. Like, people feared this dude. He would also give a lot of his uh, loan shark people presents, like guys who borrowed money from him. He would give uh, a gold watch with his name engraved on the back so that when Sam killed this guy and the police accused him of it, he could use the watch as proof that they were really good friends. And why would he ever kill a really good friend of his? Like, look, I gave him a watch. Like, why would I kill a really good friend of mine? And dude, they would buy it. You know what I mean? He also wore very thick black-rimmed glasses, which made a lot of people think that he couldn't see without the glasses on. But the truth is he could see everything that was going on and would take mental notes on how people operated, what they said, what they did. Under normal circumstances, the outfit probably wouldn't have had a guy like DeStefano in the outfit or associated with the outfit because the dude was sadistic. He was irrational, crazy behavior that drew attention to them. And to be honest with you, he never became a made member. He was always an associate. And the reason he never became made was because of how crazy he is. Think about that for one second. This dude was so crazy that the mafia did not want him to be a made member. They're like, no, he's good for work, but he can't be one of us because the dude's out of his fucking mind. So the bosses, they tolerated him because he earned them a bunch of money. He was a very successful earner. Sam Giancana and Tony Accardo invested some of their own money into his loan sharking operations, and these were the bosses. At one point, he had a negative article written about him in the Chicago Tribune by a reporter named William Doherty. So, DeStefano beat the shit out of this dude, chased him with a gun, threatened to kill his entire family, and then broke the windows on his nearby parked car. He didn't end up killing the dude, but... He fucking said, you're never, ever going to write anything about me in a paper ever again. And that's how it went. Then, on March 28th, 1960, it's a very unseasonably warm day in Chicago. Usually around this time in Chicago, the upper Midwest. I'm actually very close to Chicago. I go there often. Sanitation workers on the west side find the nude body of a guy named Arthur Adler. And they find his body frozen in the sewer. This dude was a nightclub owner. He was associated with the outfit, and he had been missing since January 20th, which was about two months prior. The cops and the FBI found out that he was in debt to Sam. He had also testified in front of a grand jury that was investigating organized crime. 
which is not a good thing. They ended up determining that the cause of death was a combination of suffocation and a heart attack, and it's believed that Sam took him to his soundproof torture basement and started to strangle him, and Arthur ended up dying of a heart attack. A guy named Bill Romer, who worked Chicago Organized Crime, heard Sam might be involved, so he decides to go to his house and ask him about it. He is led into the living room by Sam's wife, sat down in a chair. Here comes Sam down the stairs wearing pajamas. The bottom part of this dude's pajama pants are open, and Sam's dick is just hanging out. So Sam, who does not give a shit, just starts pacing back and forth in the living room right in front of Romer while he's sitting there. (laughs) And uh, Romer, after a little bit of this, just can't take it anymore. And he just says, Sam, you killed Art Adler, didn't you? And Sam just gets irate. He gets mad as hell and he yells for his family to come into the room. And his wife and three kids walk in there. And he looks at Romer and says, if I had anything to do with this, God give me and my family cancer. And Bill Romer is just like, fuck this guy. And he ends up leaving. Now, he does go back to the house many times to try to get info on the outfit and their operations and people. But Sam was always messing with this dude. He would make his wife serve Romer coffee while he's waiting for Sam. And Romer would always comment about the taste of the coffee. And Sam is always telling him, it's special blend, just sent here straight from Italy. A few weeks later, after the last time, Romer found out that Sam had been pissing in the coffee before they would serve it to him. (laughs) And uh, Bill Romer in his book called The Enforcer, which is one of my um, sources for this episode, highly suggest you get this book. It is so good. But he states in that book, he never drank coffee again after that. And he was also way more careful around Mad Sam. So in the early 1960s, Mad Sam's also branching out to more business. He ends up meeting a shady business guy named Gus Kringus, who opened up an underground casino in Sam's territory. A lot of the outfit members never ran casinos, but they would collect if one is in their territory, so the casino would actually have to pay the mob guys to stay in operation. So Sam taxed this little casino. He also loaned out money to the gamblers who were losing. It's like a win-win for him. But he also has to start watching the guys who are collecting money for him. And one of his best collectors is a guy named William Action Jackson. And he is also one of Mad Sam's top enforcers in his crew. In August 1961, he kills Jackson. And here's why. A year before in 1960, FBI agent Bill Romer asked William Jackson to become an informant for the FBI. Jackson was loyal as hell to the outfit, so he declined. He's like, I will not fucking do this. Well, the outfit found out that he had been asked to be an informant. And they didn't know if he was for sure, but they didn't want to take any chances. So... Tony Spilatro, Tony the Ant, who, like I said, is the movie Casino, Joe Pesci. That's Tony Spilatro. Another guy named Willie Dodano 
and Mario Stefano kidnapped William Jackson and took him to a south side meat rendering factory. This is where Mad Sam was waiting for them. And I'm going to tell you right now, shit's about to get really graphic. They stripped him naked. They hung him a foot off the ground by a meat hook that was impaled in his ass. They beat his entire body with a bat. His knees were smashed with a hammer. He was stabbed repeatedly with an ice pick. They used a blowtorch to burn him all over his body, specifically on his genitalia. And Sam also went as far as taking a little fillet knife and shaving little pieces of skin off of his body. They would also use a cattle prod on his genitals and the metal hook that was in his ass. He was left hanging there and tortured for three days. They threatened to kill this dude's wife and kids if he didn't confess that he was an informant. And this entire three days, he insisted he was not. William Action Jackson actually died because his heart gave out and because of loss of blood. On August 12, 1961, his body was found in the trunk of his Cadillac on Wacker Drive in downtown Chicago. When police found the almost naked body of Jackson... He was face forward with rope marks on his wrists and feet. He had cuts and burns all over his body. His chest had been crushed with what they believed was a baseball bat. And he had a hole in his right ear from some type of sharp object. This killing put forth by Mad Sam is known as one of the most brutal gangland killings in American history. And I'm just going to tell you right now, we're just up to 1961. It gets worse. And this is also where we're going to cut off because we're only in 1961. This dude has many years of operations left. I hope you guys enjoyed part one. I know it was pretty graphic. I told you it was going to be. But anyway. Ways you can get a hold of me, you can email me, justin.mcpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram, at mysterious underscore podcast. You can follow me on Twitter, at podcastmc. You can go like the Facebook page. You can join the Facebook group. Uh, you can follow me on TikTok, at burnitall13, which is also my personal Instagram account name. So, there is that. Yeah, pretty graphic episode. Like, when I was researching this, I was... I, I've obviously researched some crazy stuff, but I'm just like, holy shit, man. Like, this dude legitimately earned his nickname from an early on time period, earned his nickname, and I'm telling you it's not going to get any easier than that. And speaking of which, like I said, one of the sources was um, The Enforcer, which is a book by Bill Romer, who was the uh, FBI agent. Uh, also, a documentary called Mafia, um, which had a big segment on him. And then, of course, newspapers.com, bunch of various articles, Chicago Tribune articles, uh, stuff like that. And, um, yeah, so pretty crazy. You know, I'll be back with part two here shortly. I hope you enjoyed or didn't enjoy. I don't know. <laughs> I hope you found it informative. And until next time, I will see you folks on the flip side. Yeah.